0: By definition, we shouldn't be saying success is completing my to-do list. That's like really impossible game. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Scale
1: Up with Nick Bradley. Now, maybe this is the first time that you are listening to the show. If so, an extra warm welcome to you. And guess what? You have landed on a great one because today's guest on Scale Up is Greg McCown. Now, Greg is an expert on why some people and teams succeed where others don't. He's a New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author. In fact, one of his books has been voted by Goodread as the number one leadership and success book to read in a lifetime. Can you believe that? It's called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, and we're going to get into that book today
0: plus we are going to talk about his new book Effortless. To me, a part of what success is is to be able to continue making a higher and higher contribution over a very long period of time. So to not to spike and peak, to not boom and bust, but to be able to figure out sustainable strategies for success. Now he's been featured in Fast Company, Fortune, The Huffington Post,
1: He's been a guest on the Tim Ferriss Show and also on Jay Shetty's On Purpose podcast. He has spoken to literally hundreds of audiences around the world. Highlights are South by Southwest, interviewing Al Gore at the annual World Economic Forum in Davos and he's also had a personal invitation from Hakon, the Crown Prince of Norway, to speak at his annual innovation conference. Greg is originally from London. He now lives in California with his wife, Anna, and their four children. So you get to enjoy our amusing, what I call global citizen, Brit, US, Aussie mashed up accents for the next hour or so. Now, it's an absolute privilege being able to have amazing conversations with people like Greg. I get to sit literally in the front seat and I learn a hell of a lot from the conversations. Now, if there's one thing that I want you to take away from today's show, it is this. As high achievers, we have been conditioned to believe that the path to success is, is paved with this like relentless work and that if we want to overachieve in anything, we have to overexert, overthink and overdo. That if we aren't perpetually exhausted all the time, then we are not doing enough. So let me leave you with this. What if the opposite of all that is true? Welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Greg McCam. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up. And I am delighted to have a person on the show today who I've admired his work for some time. In fact, I would go as far as saying A book that he wrote a little while ago now is right up there with one of my favorite books. I'm not even going to say it's a business book. It's kind of just a great book. And that person is Greg Kown. Welcome to the show
0: today. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Nick.
1: So I've got a couple of different... I mean, I I was thinking about this before before we started recording. I thought, you know, what what angle do I want to kind of go here? And And for me, it's really about just being curious about people and understanding kind of how they get to where they get to. So I want to start off by asking you what success means to you.
0: Oh, that's good. Um, I mean, if I answer that question from the context of scaling up, I think that's not a bad angle because mm-hmm. because what I see a lot um, happening, at first when I was working with companies in Silicon Valley, is I would notice um, that successful ventures went through a predictable pattern. They would have clarity about what was important to them. Uh, they would, that would lead to success that would breed options and opportunities. And all of that sounds like the right problem to have, but -hmm. it does in fact turn out to be a problem if it leads to the undisciplined pursuit of more. And, and that seemed to create a problem because they, companies would start to plateau in their progress or fail altogether. And so I came to sort of think about this as a success paradox. Uh, because success can be, if we're not disciplined about it, the catalyst for failure. And so to me, a part of what success is, is to be able to continue making a higher and higher contribution over a very long period of time. So to not to spike and peak, to not boom and bust, but to be able to figure out sustainable strategies for success uh, and, and, and that, that to me is, is a vital part, uh, of, of my sort of approach, uh, to scaling up.
1: Where was the origin of that thinking for you?
0: Um, I mean, one of the origin stories, uh, and every story, you know, operates at multiple levels, right? The narrative yes. is, is complex, uh, but I mean, one important moment is while working with those Silicon Valley companies, I then had a personal experience in the midst of it where, uh, where I got an email from my uh, my manager at the time that said, "Look, Friday between one and two would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby because I need you to be at this client meeting." And I, I'm sure they were, you know, I'm sure they were joking. Like, you know, I'm sure it wasn't that serious. Or if I'd, if I had been able to push back, it would have been fine. But as it turns out, Friday comes along. We're in the hospital. That daughter has just been born, and we're well, not we, but I am torn. I'm trying to, you know, I have my laptop open. I've got my phone on. I'm trying to navigate, trying to do it all. And, and so, you know, I am, I've fallen into in this moment, the undisciplined pursuit of more. And to my, you know, to my shame, I go to the meeting. And even afterwards, I remember my manager saying, well, the client will respect you for the choice you just made, uh, but
1: wow! Sorry, I'm still I'm yeah. still struck by this. I wanted to just to be <laughs> yeah. clear, right? Just to what I'm hearing, right? My mouth is hit the floor; it's coming back up. So,
0: so yeah. you left the delivery room? Is this what we're saying? Well, we or... left. The, the, so, our daughter had already been born, uh, so okay. a, f- a few hours before. But we're just, you know, we're sort of in recovery in the in the hospital room. It's and and your and first that's, child, if I if I heard you right. It, it, it was it's was one of our daughters. Um, okay, sorry. I ne- okay. I ne- I ne- no, it's all right. I never specified for a variety of reasons, but right. but the. Um, But we, you know, we, so, so hours old, baby, you know, we're, we're, we're all fine ish, but, you know, I mean, how well is somebody after they've just gone through the valley of the shadow of death the night before they you know and and well, and I I I get it. I've got two daughters and and both yeah. of
1: those births were events and you know again I won't go into the detail <laughs> on the podcast but but you know
0: you you, you go through a,
1: you go through a lifetime right you go through a lifetime in the space of a few hours and the emotional roller coaster of that journey in its own right takes its toll um you know yeah. so I totally I'm totally with you on what you're saying but so so you, this
0: happened, and then you you went to the meeting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And and the after after the meeting, the manager said, "Well, look, the client will respect you for it." But the look on their faces, at least to me, didn't evince that sort of respect. But even if they had, it's really clear, you know, to you, to everybody listening to this, to me, that I made a fool's bargain um, because I violated something essential for something less essential, and. What I learned from that personally was the simplest of lessons, which is if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. Uh, and, and, and that's me, but people listening to this can, can assess this for themselves. You know, they could say, well, even if I haven't uh, you know, left the hospital with my hours old baby, maybe they could say, well, do they ever find themselves like I was feeling stretched too thin at work or at home? Uh, do they ever feel busy, but not necessarily productive? Uh, do they ever feel like their day is being hijacked by other people's agenda for them? And, and what I have found as I have researched this, written about it, worked with individuals and companies all over the world now, is that, you know, every, everyone says yes to all of those questions. Um, everybody is, to some extent, at least in a certain group of people let's call it what my brother Justin calls it, the hit squad, the hardworking, intelligent, talented group of people, they're going to say yes to those questions because, mm. because, and this comes back to this idea of scaling up, but it's because as your success increases, your selectivity needs to reach that same level. And often it doesn't, so success increases, so that means optionality increases Pressure increases, but our selectivity is effectively the same as before. And that's really predictable. What happens then is you will start to plateau. You won't notice it at first, but you will because you won't have time to think, you know, to figure out what's essential amidst all of these options, to be able to work out what your next highest point of contribution is. And so you will eventually be trapped by your level of success that you're in. Maybe that's fine if your life is working great, but what it typically does is it starts to burn you out physically, burn out your relationships, your team culture, and so on. So things don't even just plateau. They then, as I mentioned, start to even shift and fail altogether.
1: Is it a little bit like the um, that old adage or the old story of the, is it the frog that you put into the hot. You slowly turn the heat up. So there's a point where you're a victim of your own success to some extent, but there's a point where it comes and gets you back because it sneaks up on you to some some point.
0: Yes. And what I'm keen to point out is that even if somebody listening to this says, well, I'm not as successful as I want to be, which is almost certainly true because there's loads of levels we'd like to get to, or even if someone doesn't feel successful at all, they are. The fact that they're alive today, almost certainly, Means that they have the problems I'm describing. They will have more options than they have selectivity, right? So okay. they, they, you know, they, there's this, there's exponential explosion of choices. You know, starting, let's say, a hundred-ish years ago, 120 years ago, the expansion of options around that time. Before that time, nobody had any options. <laughs> I mean, you, 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 the the literacy rates was so much lower the the, uh, the the chance for doing anything above survival was was really really low and that's how the condition of society was generally speaking for thousands of years before is very very hard and one of the reasons it was hard is because you just had to spend so much time surviving so then a shift has taken taken place industrial revolution has taken place and suddenly people had choices and out of that, of course, grew the, the, the technology era, uh, which we, we, we're all living in, and we've all lived in it for so long we sort of think we're used to it. But it is it is still continues to be the news because it, it so rapidly increases. Uh, you know that what you could do to a totally overwhelming level. So even though you could learn anything now, right? You could read and become expert in almost any field. People don't. What they do is they become overwhelmed, and they move away from the essential things that could actually help them, and they spend all their time on social media or on ESPN or something actually way further towards the trivial many. Uh, and so that's a statement, as much as anything else, of overwhelm. There's just too much. This is too much and it creates decision fatigue. And, and so what we have to do, I think, is what what the type of leadership we need now is to become an essentialist because that's the only kind of leader who will simplify and focus before they have to. And that's what you Let, want, let's, um, you
1: Let's know. unpack, I mean, for people who have not read your book or heard you talk yeah. about this beforehand, what what actually is
0: essentialism in your definition? Essentialism is a... A way of thinking you know it's an ism and so it's a lens through which to see the world where you are looking for and creating space to get clear on what is essential okay and that's like that's the first thing so the practices that go with that are exploring what's essential eliminating is basically anything but the essential You're eliminating as much of the non-essential as possible. And then you're creating systems to make it as effortless as possible to do what matters most. And that's a cycle, explore, eliminate, execute, but it's a repeated cycle. It's a discipline, a disciplined pursuit of less. That's essentialism. Got it. And of course, the obvious
1: question, which I'm sure we've been asked more than a thousand times is how do you decide what is essential? And obviously, yeah. that's a
0: personal choice as much as anything else. I assume based on values and things like that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, I think that what I what I try to emphasize with this is that you know everything we say yes to is on a continuum. You know, let's say, uh, well, zero to a hundred. Uh, zero to ten would be the the, the complete non essentials. They are not important, uh, very unimportant. And then at the other extreme, you've got the things that are very important or essential, right? That's what essential means, the the top 10%. And I'm encouraging people to use the 90% rule so that you're looking to say yes, explicitly and repeatedly to the things that are 90% or above important to you. And so then everything below, it doesn't mean you suddenly say no to everyone and everything, but you at least question everything else because and the because matters it's because there's so much on our plate there's so much coming at us there's so much optionality that every time we say yes to something below the 90 percent, we're saying saying yes to it excuse me then we're saying no to something in the 90 percent or above so that's the inherent trade-off that we're making now we're not leaving the hospital but we're still making a trade-off that if it was placed to us as a clear trade-off, we might say, well, no, that's a fool's bargain. That's not smart. That's not the right priority, priority decision. But we do it unaware that every yes to something less important is a no to something that really is essential.
1: Yeah, okay. No, I, I, I totally get it. and I think sometimes people use the excuse, and I certainly have done this in business and in life, where it's only a small thing. You know, it's something that can be done quickly or whatever else, but I take it that it still takes up space even in your mind, right? You know, it's still something in there, which is, you know, effectively creating potentially a distraction about the things that are most important to you.
0: Yes. And, and I mean, this, this inherent reality trade-offs is very, is very important to being able to shift Into the the leading as an essentialist, to to accept that every decision is a trade-off, and to to become to develop a heightened awareness of that. Or if I said it kind of more bluntly, it would be to to stop lying about being able to do it all. Like that. I like
1: that better. I like that a lot better, Greg. Yeah. I, think that, that, that <laughs> in the, I, I always say. I always like to. I'm Australian, right? You know. I may live in the UK and I'm in Dubai right now, but we we like it when it's kind of not sugarcoated. Straight. That,
0: that straight yeah. talk. Stop lying to yourself. <laughs> Stop lying. But we are lying. We lie to ourselves, and then we lie in our in our teams and in companies all the time. So it took me a long time to figure this out that that people. I hate to even say it like this because it, I'm embarrassed because it took me years to discover this even after writing Essentialism. Nobody in teams inside of organizations are having prioritization conversations. They just don't happen. And I, and I, at first I thought, oh, that's just, that can't be true. You know, that's not what it is. And it is what it is. What happens is, okay, every so often in some quarterly offsite or some annual offsite, maybe, maybe, there'll be a prioritization conversation. But even there, most of the times when it's done, it's some executive, somebody saying, hey, here are our goals, by the way. You know, here's what we, you know, and here's some progress report against them, maybe. But the prioritization conversation is different. That's everything that happens between that presentation. So it's everything because strategy isn't what's announced. Strategy is what you say no to in the in, in the daily perpetual interactions you have with each other in the team with customers and so on, like that's real strategy. I'm not talking about stated strategy. You could have a stated strategy. Blockbuster had a stated strategy, you know, to be to be uh, compelling, to be relevant, to be able to entertain for decades to come. The strategy they executed was how to become irrelevant quickly. Yeah. Very. Well, so the like, difference. That I brilliantly well. <laughs> exactly, and so us, uh, uh, and same in life, right? We can say that our that our intent is, you know, whatever essential intent is to value our health and our family and to be able to make a contribution to the world. Let's say that's broadly speaking the goal. Yes, but the real strategy isn't the stated one; it's the the, the executed strategy. It might be social media, you know. I mean, I joke about this, but only half jokingly that you know that on the that on our Tombstones. We don't want it to read. He checked email, but that could be the executed strategy we actually follow. And so, it's in the daily interactions and trade-offs that our real strategy is made uh, and 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 exists. And so, when you don't have people talking about what actually matters and which thing we should really focus on, uh, then then you you're going to end up. You're going to end up executing a non-essentialist strategy yeah, in perfect. life as well. So, so back
1: just talking more about the organisational side of that or the business side of that. Where does the cultural piece play into that? Because you know, if you think about culture being a definition of behaviours, in many cases, it's the things that people do to drive potentially a strategy or to take action. You know, so so I take it what we're talking about here is not just a strategic change; it has to be a cultural change for that to be effective.
0: It does, and. And the, one of my findings as I have both continued my research but also the, the practitioner work that I'm doing with organizations is surprising on this. So let's just build it, extend it another step. If you discover, as I have, that people don't have the conversations and if you discover that they don't have the conversations because they're really awkward, which they are, because what you're effectively doing in prioritization conversations is you're choosing which thing matters more than something else. And nobody wants to have that conversation because, well, what if I've been working on a project for the last six months and then you come along and you're saying that just isn't even important. You know, it's not as important as the thing I'm working on. So it's inherently conflict oriented, Uh, you know, like it is conflict because prioritization is actually choosing between these things. So if you discover all of that, one of the things you must have in your culture, it's not obvious at first, it's you need a culture of listening, of deep listening, where you personally have the courage to speak up when you're having discussions and debates about what matters most, which, what trade offs you think we're making and so on. And then also as a leader to make it safe for people to speak up not just for one person in the room, but for everybody. And so to create a culture of listening where everyone speaks and everyone is heard in the meeting is a, let's say it's the, it's the most important element of being able to bring essentialism into the organization. Let me give you one case study. Um, mm-hmm. Banks, Benitez, Banks Benitez started a company called um, Uncharted, they uh, they help social innovation companies get funding for their ventures to scale up, right? That's what they do. So he, Banks got into essentialism personally for a while. And then he said, well, I want to bring it into the company. And so he gets all the executives to to do like a book club reading essentialism. One of them comes in one day and he says, he says, this book, I want to throw it across the room, which I love that because it means he understood it. You know, it's like, yeah, this isn't, This isn't. If you understand it, you don't just go, "Oh yeah, yeah, I've got, I already do that." It's like, no, you have to make trade-offs now. You have to admit them and think about them. And no one wants to have any trade-offs in life. So they start this. So they get into it, like the language is introduced, and they get to start talking about it. Which, of course, is also already culture change. Um, What you can talk about. They're listening to each other, and and then they say, "Okay." They get to this point. They say, "Well, if essentialism is true." We should be able to get the same output from lower input, right? Because it's all about being more selective and you're working on the right things. If you work on the right things, then you should be able to achieve them uh, you know, in less time. So they formul- f- formalized this. They said a, a, a 90-day experiment where they bring an external firm in to measure their output and then that team comes back in six weeks later, and then six weeks again to say, okay, how is how is this all going? And at the end of it, they find that they have been able to successfully move to a four-day work week, and that's now the formal policy of Uncharted. They have now that as their uh, is they're a four-day work week company. They achieve forty hours. Worth of output in 32 hours worth of input. Now that's the that's the success story. What's the price? What did they have to do, give up, change in order to achieve it? Prioritization conversations. What does it look like? The banks will come to someone. That's it. he was telling me that this 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 is repeated many times with many people. But he comes in and he'll say to someone, "This is something I want you to focus on. I think it's really important. I think it's essential. Uh, but can you tell me what you're working on today?" So that I know, like, so that we can talk through whether what you're doing is more important than what I'm asking you to do. And he said about 40% of the time he finds that what he's asking is more important and they agree that together. And now they suddenly take on a, they they make a different trade off. But he says 60% of the time as he listens to what they're doing, he says, nope, that is more important than what I was going to have you do. Proceed, you know, as you were. And that listening exchange, Is what has enabled them to actually increase by twenty percent the productivity of their whole company. That's a microcosm, you know. That's a a case study, you know. Formalized data is there to show the power of listening around what is most important, and and that to me is the cultural element that you're one of the cultural elements that you're that that, that, uh, in answer to your question.
1: When you, when you hear those, those successes, let's say, right. Or those case studies, does it surprise you? I mean, cause there's a point around thinking this through and creating the concept. And you've obviously put like a lot of your life's work into this, but when you see it, you know, coming out from a performance perspective or a results perspective.
0: Right. Cause. Well, I, I I'm absolutely delighted to hear about it. I interviewed yeah. him. Um, I interviewed him on my podcast. Um and, and I loved every moment of talking to him because this is, in a sense, it's one of the best experiments that can be formulated because I'm not even involved in the experiment. So I can be divorced of it. Whatever they do, they're going to do. Whatever the output is, it's output. And, and you get to see, and I got myself to be able to learn everything I've just shared about it because of because of him having run this experiment in their in their organization, so I'm surprised, I'm delighted, I'm grateful, I'm humbled, and I'm also instructed and educated. And that's and what I've learned is is non-trivial. And it's it's helping. It's it's part of why I'm now conducting new research on listening and on deep listening. It's it's one of the one of the reasons that that is a subject I'm now uh, you know I'm now b- beginning. Uh, you know, a new round of, of, of study on because of the learning uh, from examples like back because it, it
1: strikes me also that there's a, there's a, quite a shift in leadership there. So if you think about, if you think about the um, let's call it a more traditional form of leadership, which, you know, there's a lot of chaos that happens and I'm, <laughs> my background's in private equity. So I've seen all sorts of things go on. There's a sure. lot of top down. I'm not going to listen. I'm just going to tell you what to do totally. um, where this, this, in many cases, relies on slowing down a bit because listening takes longer, certainly can take longer because you have to appreciate the perspectives. Then you've got the emotional intelligence side of this as well and the self-awareness side of this. So what you just described really for me was more of a quite a fundamental leadership change or a philosophy of leadership change than just a cultural change, which is massive. It's- That's why I was asking the question of behind it a little bit yeah. to finish this, that, you know Were you surprised? Because at face value, it makes sense, but the application
0: of this is much more far-reaching and much deeper. It it is so non-trivial. I mean, essentialism broadly is more countercultural than I realized it was when I wrote it. Yeah. Um, so there's that alone. But then what you're saying is, I completely agree with, which is getting leaders to listen, but especially as I distinguish two things in my new research between what I'm currently calling shallow listening versus deep listening yep. is really, is really different. I just ran an, an exercise with a group of 70 executives from a pharmaceutical company, a very, t- I mean, incredibly talented group of people. One of the, one of the people there had, had started medical school at age 17, To not university, medical school at 17, right? So they're like high performing. But also, I mean, I've worked with so many cultural, you know, different cultures and organizations. It wasn't a bad culture. It was people were talkative. They were friendly. They were open. You know, you could sense there was dialogue already existing. So that's like the group you have in the room. They're responsible for a huge, you know, huge employee base. They're trying to do their, their best work, all of this. And then the exercise I ran it was uh, it was inspired by an example that I'd heard from Stephen Covey many years many years ago, and so I ran this experiment. They basically they had to. I gave them a scenario. I was it was a, I was a I was a teenager who wanted to quit law school, not law school, excuse me, high school. Teenager quitting high school, and their job was to simply empathically restate back to me what I was experiencing. And they described this exercise to me as torture. Like basically I tortured them. I mean, that's what they're saying. Because what they wanted to do and kept doing was to try and solve the problem. They wanted to jump in there. And somebody afterwards, I said, well, why was it torture for you? And one of them put up and said, said because we are professional problem solvers because we love to provide solutions. We get rewarded for having solutions, for suddenly bringing all these ideas of what we could do and how we could solve this in different ways. And, and you kept on saying, no, you haven't listened yet. You haven't heard me yet. And so we kept on going, I don't know, at least half an hour, but maybe even closer to an hour of torture as I said, no, you, you still don't understand me yet. So you got to keep going. And they kept until they eventually Really started listening deeply. And as it turns out, I mean, this is the this is the case study, is is that I don't really want to quit high school. I am totally embarrassed because I've done badly in a test and I'm worried I'm going to get kicked out of high school and I I need to know what to do next. But see, at every level of the conversation, if they use all their skills, they'll address the wrong problem. And what is the difference between addressing the wrong problem, like the wrong problem at the surface and the right problem at this core? I mean, that's every ounce oh. of difference. Because does, yeah. all that energy. I mean, you think about you think about in private equity at the times. In fact, I know of an example where a company, private equity people came in and they thought that they understood what the problem was. And they have they have consumed and almost destroyed the culture of the company that they have invested in. Because they think, oh, this just needs to be efficient. So we'll just apply oh. the efficiency systems we've used before. And 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 these internal people are like this isn't how it works. This isn't why we've become incredibly successful. It's not because of those systems. It's because of our own different way of doing it. And they've just had this battle for years. Instead of growing year on year at 20%, which is what they were doing before, they basically plateaued. And it's that same problem. One could describe it within essentialist languages, like the non-essential is at the surface. The essential is at the core. So your ability as a leader to be able to listen through those layers and get to the core. Is in a sense your most important leadership attribute.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Wow, that was a great answer, by the way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> My mind is like I, 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 like I like to kind of get into the detail of stuff. So I'm just contemplating the way you describe that, and then yeah, for but me, go, it's usually, stay with it, stay with it. I'm going to keep going with it. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. I mean, okay. So, so I want to draw a little bit onto one of the words that you've used and use it in the title here. This idea of discipline, which, which in yeah. the same concept we're talking about here, because. Because I love the idea of, you know, what really matters probably sits at the core, but, you know, sometimes we operate outside the core, but there's a whole heap of, my visualization of this is smoke. There's smoke and cloud and, and stuff, and you sometimes can't see the core because you've got all this other stuff going on. And as you said at the very beginning, there's more and more stuff coming on, so we get decision fatigue and all that. But this, this word discipline, how much, how much is it around, you kind of know what, what is essential, but you're either not disciplined enough to act on it, or there's an emotional thing versus a practical, objective thing. If you if you understand what I'm asking here, because like you know, it's like it's like to say like sometimes you know what you should do, and you know, young kids are great at this. They know what what right and wrong is, but they do the wrong thing anyway because there's a mischievousness to it, or there's whatever else. How how much of of a decision making part of this comes from? I know what I should be doing, but I'm just not, I just don't have the self-discipline to do it.
0: So this, I, I addressed this in essentialism, but it was almost like I didn't because mm. I I hardly spoke to a person, even as essentialism, like, I mean, essentialism has reached a lot of people. Um, and, and so I'm hearing from people all the time about their experiences with it, but I almost never heard mirrored back to me what I wanted to say about your question. So the the final section of, of the book, Essentialism, is about how to make execution as easy as possible, as effortless as possible. And it's about reversing the, the what we normally think of as discipline. Um, discipline is we think of as primarily just like, okay, I must discipline myself, you know, I must choose to do this, which of course is true. But another way of thinking about discipline is that you build a disciplined system. So while I'm feeling disciplined, while I have some, let's say, disciplined coins each morning, how do I invest it? Do I invest that in, I'm just going to spend that to make myself do something now, or am I going to invest it in building a system that will work for me and make it easier tomorrow than it is today? And so that all, all the time you're building systems, disciplined systems, so that you still maintain the same level, basically, of discipline. And that's what most of the data suggests, that, that humans can improve their level, of, personal level of discipline slowly over time in, in, in incremental ways. But pretty much it's going to be the same. So, so it's how you use that currency that matters. And so having felt so often that this was missed, that's why I wrote another book. That's why I felt like Effortless was worth writing, was to say, look, doing the right thing, right? That's essentialism. Of course, that matters. Of course, that's vital. But doing it in the right way is, I now think, equally important I think that, I, th- I don't think one is more important than the other because because to know what's important as you rightly say, often we do already know what's important. Uh, sometimes people I mean my bias is that everybody knows actually. Um, yep. so if I ask people the question this way, if I say, look, what's one thing that's essential to you that you're underinvesting in right now, what is it? right? In fact, what's yours? What's your answer? So I can, tell you, I can tell you right now what it is. And I can tell what you
1: exactly. So for me, it's, it's my family right now today. Yep. If you ask me today, and partly that's because as we spoke about first recording, I've, I've just decided to jump on a plane for a month, the longest I've been away from my nine-year-old and my six-year-old and my wife, probably ever since they were born in yes. pursuit of some stuff I'm doing in my business. And I know yep. the trade-off, I know the trade-off, but that's, that's the one area that's probably yeah, getting, getting the least attention. You know, yeah, even though it's, it's an essential it's, part of who I am and what I'm about.
0: Yeah. I'll be curious at the end of the month, whether you'll ever do it again. The longest <laughs> I've ever been away from my family was three weeks and I, def- oh. I it didn't take me, didn't take, actually, I don't think it was as long as three weeks. I think it might've been 13 days. I think I'm wrong to say that, but however long it was. I was like, well, I'm never doing that again. Uh, so you maybe you will, maybe you will conclude that, but but like so so you didn't. It didn't take you anything to answer the question, and and that's why I mean essentialism matters. Or why it's necessary but insufficient. It's like well, okay. Well now you know. How can you construct a s- systems that mean that you'll that you'll invest in your family to the level that you you're stated. Strategy implies you should, right? Like that's the question. How can you construct the system to do it? I mean, I I mean, not that this, not that this is actually plausible for you, but one of the things in this particular case, two weeks, you know, because of the pandemic, and then the, the the U.S. trip, and your children will be in school and so on. But one of the things that it took a while for my wife and I to to build and set up, but we we moved to home education. And uh, and and ran my own business, and so it meant that I, tr- when I travel, about eighty percent of the time, I bring one of my children with me. Oh wow! And that was that was a system. I mean, you can see that that takes a bit more effort up front to construct all of that. Mm-hmm. But once you've constructed it, it takes the thing that was most non-essential about my life, and turned it into something that's been. Um, one of the most essential, like it's really been a special thing and you haven't missed the window at all, right? Your children are young. In fact, you they're like perfect golden years for doing it because they'll start to, they'll remember these experiences, but I got more one-on-one time with my children in a single trip. I don't know than I might, I might have had in certainly in a yeah. month of normal life. And also the experience Maybe for
1: a- them as well. I mean, you know, in, in terms of, of a, not just the connection with you, but the things that they get to see,
0: you know, and so when I first yeah, okay. did it, that was that was a big part of why I did it was for them so that they would see various parts of the world or very parts of the country. And they have they've seen all sorts of things they wouldn't have otherwise seen. Um, you know, I'm thinking like I took my two eldest girls with me when we went to um, uh, we, we went to the uh, to um, to the Netherlands and and uh, went to anyway, that's, that's another thing. But they read books before they went and they, you know, it became like a whole a whole important uh, you know, experience and, and learning, but here's the thing that I didn't anticipate is that it transformed the experience for me mm, and made yes. it completely different for me. Because previously, you know, you get to the hotel, you live in the, you kind of live in the hotel, and you know, you just eat whatever you're going to eat. You, you maybe even just do room service or whatever. You, you're like, you're not there for an adventure. Uh, but as soon as I had one of my children with me, it was an instant adventure. So we're going to find, okay, what's a cool restaurant? What's an interesting place? What's what? I mean, I've been to so many different art, you know, children's science museums and art exhibits and whatever, and all sorts of things that I would not normally have gone to, or even things that we didn't even enjoy in the end, but we still gained experience doing and just seeing, seeing, you know, and so it's been so much richer for me as well. So that's a pretty practical example of what I'm talking about for what you've identified. And then you say, well, hold on, how can you construct it so that it happens even if you're not thinking explicitly about about it? And and that takes some setup, but then it works for you. And this has been years and years and years of this now. And so my eldest just went to university at Brigham Young University and and like we have a l- literally just a lifelong set of memories of traveling together and, and one-on-one time that's, uh, that's, you know, priceless now.
1: Wow. I was, one of my questions was, how have, you, how have you adopted this into your own personal life? You've covered that really nicely with that example. <laughs> the, the, one, the one thing I was going to, again, just reflect on how you answered that. Certain concepts come into my head when people are speaking and I'm kind of listening around it. So one of the things that jumped into my head was balance. And partly in the terms of how I've approached things. So I, I don't believe balance really exists. Okay. This is my personal belief. I believe there are seasons, right? There are seasons where certain things get, you know, maybe more of a prioritization than others based on, you know, whatever your objectives are, your goals are. So so for me right now, I would say there's a season where I have opportunities that I'm, I'm you know, unlocking. And one of those decisions is the travel. And there's other things as well. One of the things I don't compromise on, which is probably one of my highest values is health and fitness. So, you know, I was in the gym twice today, you know, and it, and it doesn't matter where I am in the world and what I'm doing, I'll exercise every single day um, because it's a high priority. It's an essential thing for me. So what's your view on the on, on the thought of balance and that idea? Is, is it more that, you know what, forget that. You just have to focus on essential things. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or is there a hierarchy of what those essential things are that operates
0: in the way that I'm sort of explaining this concept of balance? Um. Yes. I mean, well, an example that comes to mind in answer to your well, answering your question, I think that if you get if you are perpetually prioritizing, then then you can construct a life that over time reinforces itself, even if I didn't use the word balance is not one of my favorite words. Um, but what you want is a dynamic equilibrium where all the essential things work together, right? You're, and that's just, that's just like the work of life is to be constructing that system. The, oh, this isn't working. And every day things aren't working, right? Every day something is, some, something, something is like either needing tweaking or like, oh, that really needs a good adjustment. Like it's an ongoing process in my life, a, a, a pursuit, a disciplined pursuit seems like the right language. Hmm. Um, but like the order matters. And, and I mentioned an example. So somebody had reached out to me, uh, the wife of, a, of an eye doctor an eye surgeon who got to the point where his life was completely out of equilibrium. Um, Not surprisingly, it was spending more time on, you know, in, in the office on his career work, not spending time on his physical health, not spending time in his most important relationships. They were reading essentialism on a, on a two day car ride. And so they read it throughout the whole trip Took notes and started making decisions by the end of this trip. Okay, so what did that look like? Well, he put boundaries in place uh, at his office. Okay, he instead of saying, "Okay, I've just got to serve everybody," he said, "He said, who can only I serve? Who could I recommend to the other people in the practice? Who could I recommend outside?" Uh, in in some other practice, if necessary, and so that criteria was so much more selective. Uh, he started making exercise absolutely, you know. So, so like, let's say, let's say, first it was protecting the asset. Uh, secondly, it was protecting the most important relationships in their life, the essential relationships, and then third was whatever other projects you're going to take on, prioritizing those. So that's the order: protect the asset. Essential relationships, other. A non-essentialist operates from the outside in, and essentialist works from the inside out. The outside in is a really important problem with it, which is that you never really finish the outside. So, so it's like boiling the ocean. You're like, okay, as soon as I've boiled the ocean, then I'll get to my essential relationships. Uh, and as soon as I've got my other social relationship, then I'll get to protecting the asset. I'll sleep. I'll rest. I'll recuperate. I'll exercise, and so on. And it's getting the order right. If you get the order right, then it, then then you start to have an equilibrium that works and is sustainable. If you get the order wrong, then you will had somebody some yeah like well like the same doctor he, he's got the order wrong. There's nothing left of him when he comes home. So his relationships become strained and and awful really because there's nothing you've got nothing left to give. And yeah. then by the end of the day, you're exhausted and it's n- midnight and someone's just on Zillow for two hours instead of sleeping because they're trying to recuperate in this you know, way that isn't going to work. And so that's what I would say. It's like get that order right and you will tend to create an, an, uh, an equilibrium that will be able to help you continue to thrive.
1: Yeah, and it's back to what you said before, Greg. In terms of, I think, and I agree with you. I think we do all know what the what that that um, that <laughs> priority order is. But, yes. But we don't do it. Right. And and this is, again, I'm always conscious of, you know, we, we can kind of get into this conversation, I get immersed in it. Right. And then I think, oh, there's people actually listening to this. So <laughs> I want to make sure that we kind of ground it for people as well.
0: Sure. But
1: let, let, let's say we agree on that point. Right. We agree on the point that we, we kind of know what our main priorities are. We know what the things are that are really important. But for whatever reason, we we don't do that. Right. We 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 do the other stuff. You know, maybe it's because of procrastination, maybe because it's too hard. You talked beforehand, it's about creating some sort of structure or system or process. That's one of the things. But what else? What else can someone do? If they are listening to this now and they know deep down, right? They know deep down I'm not doing the things that I really should be doing. What are the practical tips for them?
0: Let, let me give you, let me extrapolate live with you right now, five yeah, essential it. things that you can do. Five, five tools to make it more effortless to do what's essential. How about that? Right. Love it. Uh, no, number one, uh, ask yourself every day the question, what's the most important thing I need to do today? Just that. So you have a, an essential intent for the day. That will change every day. Uh, I have somebody that used to be, well, at first it was to do with their business. Then it was to do with protecting the asset. Then it was, they get a call from their dad or oh, your mom's in the hospital. It's nothing serious, just letting you know. But when she asked the question that day, it was, yes, go to the hospital right now. She does. She talks to her mother. I love you. Mother said the same. I love you. Within an hour to everyone's surprise, her mother had fallen into a coma, never recovered. Uh, and a week later, you know, they turned off the life support machine. And she wrote to me to say, if I hadn't asked that question that day, if I hadn't been an essentialist that day, I'd have made a different trade-off that would have been one of the great regrets of my life. So first thing you can do every day, what's essential? You know, what's the most important thing I need to do today? What's the priority for today? Uh, the singular. Uh, you'll do other things, but to be clear. Okay, number two thing that somebody can do, I would say I would say to create buffer in your schedule. Most people are living out of their inboxes now, all the inputs, and then if they're not doing that, they're still attached to their phones and they're just checking up on all their various, various social media accounts and any action there and activity. And, and that's sort of the way that they're, Making their decisions. And and then, if they're not doing that, then they're in Zoom, eat, sleep, repeat life, especially now in the pandemic. And and so, there's just no space to think and no space to respond. And so, you end up being late all through the day as well. And so, this becomes the lifestyle um, that people live. And so, one thing they can do about this this was taught to me by Jeff Wiener, the former CEO of LinkedIn. Uh, who is uh, and, you know, a committed essentialist. And he said, one of the reasons that my days don't feel like that. Um, well, he said, one day of my life as CEO has felt like what you just described, which was just an unthinkable thing to say. Uh, and he said, the, the reason is because I, I put 30 minutes of buffer on my schedule uh, four times a day. So I've got two hours worth of nothing scheduled, meetings with myself. So thinking maybe time, effectively. Thinking time, it could be catch up on email. It could be deal right. with an emergency, but it's just buffer in the schedule so that you're not pretending that life will work perfectly and that nothing unexpected is going to come up. We know it will, so we should admit that and build that in. So, so number two, I would say, is create buffer you know, buffer in your schedule. Uh, number three thing that you can practically do, I think, is is to to develop the, the the courage or the skills even to have prioritization conversations with other people, so that you initiate the conversation. That so you say to somebody, okay, look. This is, what's, this is what's on my schedule today. This is what I think is most important today. What, what's on your schedule? Let's talk about it. And so you initiate that conversation, um, especially initiating the reality of trade-offs. That always takes a little bit of courage to do, but it's a really important thing to, to, to discuss. Um, I once was trying to persuade my daughter to um, to read this book on a certain day Uh, like do it all today. in one day, and I'm like the manager who's got the shiny new object and just do this. And she was pushing back politely. Um, and, and then she, then she stopped and then she, I just went to the office. It was fine. It was not some big blow up. Uh, but she slipped a note under my door. You can edit this in post, but, but I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it and read it to you. No, 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 do it. No, I love this. I I took a picture. Um, I mean, this was a little while ago, but I just uh, I just took a picture recently of it. Okay, this is what she wrote. I already expressed my unwillingness to read this book, but I'm willing to make a counter offer. I'm not willing to read it all in one day today, but I'd be happy to explore the possibility of reading it in the future over the course of a few weeks. I believe it would be best to wait till the end of my literature assignment. If you would like me to read this book in place of a separate assignment. And over the course of a few weeks, I'm sure that can be made possible. Right. Oh, wow. <laughs> she's, she's 14 years old when she wrote that. And, and uh, it, that's what I'm talking about is number three is to develop the skills to not be stuck between polite yes or rude no, which a lot of people are. And so then, of course, they just give lots of polite yeses. But to discover there is a polite no, or there is a negotiated yes, or there's just negotiation as a third option. And so to learn how to negotiate trade-offs uh, and to have the courage to initiate that would be like number three thing I think people can do. I would say number four um, is to invert, um, always invert. Like, And that what I mean is a lot of overachievers just overcomplicate the execution of what's essential. So they just overcomplicate it and they distrust the easy. So they end up creating burdens in their minds about how hard a thing has to be. Oh, family, I gotta do family. It's so, so overwhelming. I don't know how I would do it so much. And they get so, it's just, yeah, overwhelming. What I suggest is instead of asking how can I work harder to get better results, it's how can I make it easy? How could how, what would this be like if it was easy? How how could I? What's the easiest way to achieve this outcome? I was coaching someone to do that. Manager at a university, uh, she was the kind of person who's up till four a.m. in the morning, um, photoshopping for her church thing the next day. Uh, nobody's asking her to spend that time doing that, but she, you know, just overcomplicating, overexerting. And I said, okay, ask this question. And she gets a call from another university professor uh, saying, "Can you get someone to come over and video my class this semester?" She's responsible for the videography team, and so she's like, "I'm going to so impress and watch this." And she goes, and she's gonna, she's gonna get, uh, uh, like. A whole team of people and they're gonna do edit edit the whole thing together every class they're gonna have music intros outros graphics slides all of this it's a it's a semester's worth of work for a whole team and then she goes okay hold on invert ask the opposite question how could it be effortless to achieve the result he really wants so what do you really want? Oh what you want oh it turns out it's one student who's gonna miss a few classes because of an athletic commitment. So what if we just had another student in the class video it on their phone and just send it to him? Yeah. Professor's delighted. She's delighted. 10-minute phone call ended, saved all that resource, all that energy. And she just sat back and she's just like, Greg, I can't believe it. Like That solution was hidden from view. I almost missed it. I almost sort of killed myself and my team to just add this extra project, not necessary. And so that would be the third, the, the fourth thing is just ask the question, how can I make as effortless as possible uh instead of the the, the that feels know, um that feels freeing
1: just just even asking that empowering question feels freeing doesn't it i mean you know yeah
0: well, it, it does it does to me anyway and, and then and then maybe sort of a, a fifth thing here that people can do immediately to make it more effortless to do what's essential. Uh I would say I would say define what done looks like. Uh, and, and l- let me give that context. So, so we know in projects that many projects are more complicated than they need to be because we don't define what done looks like. It's vague, it's endless, there's mission creep. You just keep adding, you add because you're a perfectionist and uh, want to overachieve, and other people add because, and so on. You never. So you can massively expand things. If you define what done looks like, it definitely helps. To narrow the focus and get the right things done. But I want to just give one concrete thing people can do right now, even beyond just project application of that question, and that is to create a done-for-the-day list. Most of our to-do lists get longer by the end of the day than they were at the beginning. So by definition, we shouldn't be saying success is completing my to-do list. That's like really impossible game. But if you create a different list, so keep making the long, long list. Fine. Have an endless list that you can have. That's fine. But that's not your what I will do today list. A done for the day list is what are the things I need to do today that if I achieve them, I will feel satisfied by the end. And I'll be able to sort of end and just go, okay, that's it. I'm done. And no more sneaky work after that. We're done. And and so a done for the day list is a good antidote to this zoom eat sleep repeat world that we're all living in where there's never a done time for the day and there's never a done we're never done and so we're unsatisfied and exhausted at the end of the day instead of satisfied and and and, you know still with something left in the tank so those are five things people can do right now to make essentialism more effortless you know what's great about that right what's really great about
1: that as as i was listening to you say those five things i think i do that i do that And and then particularly the last one i think i must be in a essentialist thinker and doer then (laughs) because I I do a thing called chunking I get everything out but then I go what's the one big domino what's the one thing right that if I push that domino down today it's going to get the result and then my list is quite small usually because if I do that one thing my day is dumb and I have a maximum of five things that I have on that list but yeah I found that that number works for me right for me for me personally if I put anything more than five it's um, it's usually somewhere between three to five, but that one mm-hmm. thing, the first thing, is the one thing. If I get that one thing done, it might be working with a client, it might be creating something like this, whatever. Then I give myself permission, and this is again probably comes back to mindset and psychology. That you know what, it's been a great day. So there you go. Anyway, just to share that I, as we finish up no, our conversation, I, <laughs> I love
0: it, and it 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 reinforces the main point, which is you know that 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 activity is not. Yep. activity, that effort and reward is not linearly related. Yes. That yes, it's yes, disproportionately related, hugely so. And so if you can identify the most important thing to do today, sometimes it's not a cheat, but sometimes I'll say, okay, most important thing in my life, that is the priority. And then I'll say, okay, most important thing in my professional work. Okay. And that is now my most important professional job, but it's not the most important thing I do today. So that's kind of how I'll think about it. And, and if I do those things, you, you know, when you do them, you can feel it as you're doing it, you're like, this is more this, this matters so much, doing it feels so satisfying, like we just did something that actually moved the needle forward, something that really helps us to get to the next level of contribution. And uh, so I, 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 you know, I know of what you
1: speak. Fantastic. Well, listen, Greg, um, you know, you've been generous with your time. <laughs> We've been rattling on for an hour or so now. Um, fantastic! I'm just going to recommend that people get your books. Certainly, Essentialism. I said it from the outset of this conversation. One of my favourite books, and to be able to unpack it with you today is a true honour. So thank you for that. And and obviously your new book, which has just been released uh, this year, is Effortless as well. Which is, would you call that a companion to some extent to Essentialism? Is it the you know we talked about it a little bit today? Is it something that sort of maybe grounds a couple of the elements that came from Essentialism?
0: Um, I would say that based on the experience people have reading it if someone hasn't even read essentialism and they read effortless they they seem to sort of they they have any a more like a an energetic response to effortless and and so so i am i'm i don't i don't know perfectly the answer to your question because i think you can come at either book they're standalone but I, I like to think and it's a bit it's a bit presumptuous but i like to think of them as like the paul mccartney and john lennon <laughs> or something like you can you they both made music separately but man it was when they were together in the beatles that the magic happened and so i think that there is a sort of synergistic relationship between these ideas and they both work and you can come at them at either, either angle um, and if someone's feeling burned out I would start with effortless. And if someone's just feeling like, my goodness, I just have too many things going on, I'd start with essentialism. But you can see that those two so case, effectively saying, use cases great. are very similar.
1: And they're both masterpieces, is what you're <laughs> that, That's the subtlety <laughs> of it. Uh, yeah. That All was, right.
0: Uh, yeah. On, on a, and that's a terrible note to end on, it's a delight. It's a brilliant note. It's a brilliant note. It's a brilliant note.
1: Okay. Well, listen, last question then. So, where can people reach out? Obviously, we've talked about the books, but where can people reach out to you? Um, I think you've got a podcast as well. Isn't that right, Greg?
0: Yeah, the what's essential podcast is something I've just just really enjoyed uh, it's fairly new but it's been a terrific experience um, uh, there's uh, essentialismcom always has uh, challenges and Academy that's developing and growing there uh, in fact we just just uh, just released a whole a whole program a whole suite of master classes around that so I think that's something that could be useful for people uh, right. and uh, that's a good place to start
1: excellent well listen it's been a pleasure an honor so thank you for coming on the show today and uh, and serving this audience with so much fantastic wisdom and and also the practical tips that we finished in so thank you very much thank you nick Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you've enjoyed the show just as much as I've enjoyed creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me, it helps the show, plus it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything that you heard in today's show, to find out how you can join our community on Facebook or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now.